Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Please remain standing for just another moment as I read to you from the fifth chapter of the book of Genesis. This is the list of the descendants of Adam. When God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them humankind, Adam, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his likeness, according to his image. And named named him. The days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. Seth lived after the birth of Enosh 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. This is a portion of the story of God told for the people of God. Please say with me, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I have just read to you the first few of ten generations found within this fifth chapter of the book of Genesis. Now, if you are like some people, when you come to the genealogies, you get out your highlighters and your color-coded biblical timelines and some popcorn, and you get ready for a lot of really good times. (laughs) But if you're like most of us, you read a name, maybe a second name, and you skip to the next chapter. These genealogies are not the easiest things to approach when we find them in the Bible. The names are strange and unfamiliar, sometimes even unpronounceable, and the longer that these genealogies get, the more and more mind-numbing they become. Anybody that's tried to read straight through the book of Chronicles knows exactly what I mean. My hope today, though, is is to maybe invite you into a little bit more patience when it comes to these genealogies. There is, maybe surprisingly, a purpose to them. We may be unfamiliar with the names and unpracticed at the structure, but I do think that we can find meaning within these genealogies. And to start out, I will start with a few more familiar examples. In the first chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, he begins with a genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And from there, the author lists a lot of names. They're predominantly men, but there are a few women interspersed throughout, and he begins with Abraham, and he moves all the way down through Jesus, and he finishes with this statement. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The author obviously thinks there are some important things here, one of which is this number 
14. In the ancient Hebrew tradition, numbers always carried more, more meaning than a simple count. One of the ways that numbers took on their meaning was that they would assign values to letters. And they would add these values together in certain words to find what the value of this word is. And in the Hebrew mind, the number 14 means the name David. And so this author, Matthew, starts his book by shouting to us, David, David, David. He gives us a clue in the first sentence. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Most of our scholarship tends to believe that Matthew was written to a primarily Jewish audience. And as such, part of Matthew's agenda in this gospel is to reinforce the idea that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. In order for that to be the case, Jesus had to fulfill certain expectations, one of them being that he would be a descendant of David. And so this author, so Matthew starts his gospel by telling us over and over and over again, David, 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 14, 14, 14. And beyond this usage of this number 14, this genealogy carries a wealth of stories. Names within this genealogy include Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Tamar, Rahab, Boaz, Uriah's wife, Hezekiah, Josiah. These are just a few of the names that we find here, but when you have time one day, if you explore the stories behind these names, you will find so many different things. There is joy and there is strength and there is triumph in the stories of these people, but there is also sin and sex and deceit. And this genealogy tells us that it all belongs. That Jesus' own lineage is not whitewashed. The strangest things that we may find in the Bible are highlighted in this genealogy and said to belong within the line of the Messiah. Now let's explore Luke's genealogy. In Luke's genealogy, in chapter 3 of his gospel, you don't need to read very far to find that it is a lot different than Matthew's. Many of the names are different. The number of generations are different. There's no interruption of this line of men to bring in women or historical events. And where Matthew begins with Abraham and descends to Jesus, Luke begins with Jesus and ascends to Adam, who's then described as the Son of God. Luke, as you might imagine, has a different agenda than Matthew does. Luke is, of course, the only non-Jewish author within our book of the Bible, and his audience is not a specifically Jewish audience. His audience includes Jews and Greeks and Pamphylians and Romans and all other sorts of tribal identities. Luke is writing to a more universal audience, and as such, his message is more universal. His concern is not to support the idea that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but to say that Jesus is the anointed one for all of humankind. One of the ways that he does this is through this genealogy in chapter 3. The culmination of Luke's genealogy 
is to say that Jesus is the son of Adam, who is a son of God. No matter what tribe you come from, Luke says, no matter what your political status of slave or free, no matter if you are in the land of your birth or not, no matter your gender, Luke says that we all belong to this same tribe. According to this genealogy, we are all sons and daughters of Adam, and so we are all sons and daughters of God. All of this comes from simple genealogies. And so today, as we are in the midst of our study of Genesis, we will go to chapter 5. We'll actually go to chapter 4 first, because the first genealogy that you hit in Genesis is found at the end of chapter 4. It traces Cain's lineage after Cain is exiled. It goes seven generations, and it's in Cain's lineage that we find the birth of the arts. Cain's descendants are described as the fathers of those who play stringed instruments and pipes. And sculptors and metal workers come from Cain's line. And immediately following Cain's genealogy, we come to this one. It follows a familiar pattern throughout. It says that when X had lived this many years, he became the father of Y. And when X had lived after the birth of Y this many more years and had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of X were all those years added up, and then Y, X died. Then it tells the same story for the next generation and the next generation. I have been reading this chapter of Genesis for several weeks now. And every time that I've read it, I've thought to myself, what on earth am I going to talk about? It is, it is not the easiest thing to try to come up with a sermon from this. But there are things within this genealogy that immediately leap out at us. One of the things that obviously leaps out at us is that the people live a long time. Here's some of the numbers. Adam lived 930 years. Seth was 912. Mahalalel was 895. Methuselah comes in in the oldest at 969. Lamech was 777. Noah lived to 950. As I read through the commentaries on this, I learned that it was common in ancient cultures to inflate the ages of their kings as they wrote the lists of the king's genealogies. There's one in particular called the Sumerian King List that is a list of 10 kings, and the coverage in years spans 432,000 years for 10 kings. This kind of inflation does tell us something about the purpose of these genealogies. If you are a dynasty that can last 432,000 years, that means that you have done some good things, that you are able to keep power, that you had accomplished much, that you reigned a long time successfully. Our genealogy in comparison is a little bit more realistic, but it still says somebody lived 969 years. One of the other things 
that stood out to me with this genealogy was the way that it begins. We've gone through chapters 3 and 4. We've done the fall, as it's called, and we've done the murder of Cain. And yet this chapter 5 starts with the phrase, When God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God. And then when Adam had a son, he was made in Adam's likeness. The person or the people that compiled these chapters of Genesis by placing this genealogy and specifically this phrase after chapters 3 and 4 is saying that our sin, our behavior, the way that we mess up is not what defines us. Our identity is not found in any of these things that we mess up. But this writer is saying again that your identity is found in the image that you carry and the breath that you breathe and nothing that happens and nothing that you can do will change the source of your identity. And while these two things somewhat helped me to understand this text, I think the thing that helped me the most was to remember the circumstances in which this text came to be in its final form. These stories of Genesis are likely compiled into this form during the Babylonian exile. They're stories that have been told before for centuries orally. They've probably been written down. But when they're actually compiled into the form that we have them in today, it's during the Babylonian exile. And so this exile colors the way that these stories are recorded. It colors the way that they are, what order they're written in. And it colors the way that uh, which stories are even told at all. And when I remembered this fact, the fact of the exile, I began to ask myself a few different questions. What is the importance of a genealogy to a people in exile? I began to imagine that it was me and my people that had been forced from our homes, that we had once again become strangers in a strange land dependent for our lives on a tribe that's stronger than our own tribe. If I was in this situation and I was tasked with compiling the stories of our people, what kind of stories would I want to include? I would want to tell stories that told my people who they were, that spoke to their identity, that spoke to who they are and where they come from. I'd want to tell stories that told my people who they were as a community, as a tribe, as something that they belonged to. And I would want my people to know, and I would tell stories that helped them to realize that even in the midst of their exile, they still could have purpose. So maybe I would include a story that says that this world exists not because of the violence of the gods around us, but because of a divine creative urge and power and love and desire to share the richness of life. And maybe I would include a story that gives us the genesis of love for another, a family and community. And maybe I'd include a story about what happens when that community is disregarded or violated with violence, a story that says the consequences must be faced. Sometimes the consequences for our action is exile from the garden 
that we call home. And maybe if I was the compiler of these stories, I would add a genealogy. Because I think that this genealogy does speak at least three things that I could find and probably many more to a people that are in exile. The first thing that this genealogy speaks to me and what I think it speaks to a person in exile is that our identity comes from Adam who was made in the very image and likeness of God. We are the image bearers. Despite the situation that we find ourselves in and no matter what it is that we've done to get into this situation, this identity does not change. And the funny thing about this genealogy is that it's universal, which for these people in this exile means that their Babylonian captors follow the same line. Their Babylonian oppressors also carry this image of God in some way. Jeremiah, in his letter, in his proclamations, has something similar in mind in chapter 29. He tells the people that are in the Babylonian exile that they need to pray for and work with and help and assist and seek the prosperity of their Babylonian captors. So the first thing that I think that this genealogy gives us is an idea of unity, both within our own tribe and with the tribes that we sometimes think of as other. The second thing that I think that, I think that this genealogy does for us is this. It gives us a sense of continuity and permanence. That Sumerian list of kings that I mentioned was compiled in Babylon, just like this one was. And so I think that our genealogy in some ways is a response to the genealogy of the Babylonians around them. The Sumerian king list established legitimacy. It told of accomplishment and strength and a familial dynasty. And I think that our genealogy in chapter 5 says that our people too come from a royal line. Our people too are legitimate and we have strength and we have accomplishment. And I think that in our genealogy we can say that the accomplishment that we have is in fulfilling the first thing that God gave us to do. God says to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the land, and to reign over it. And so Adam gives birth to Seth, and Seth gives birth to Enosh, and Enosh gives birth to Mehalalel, and so on, and we fill the land. This is one of our ways of partnering with God in bringing his kingdom to earth, is that we carry this message forward to the next generation, and the next generation, and the generation after that. The third thing that I think this genealogy says to a people in exile is this. This genealogy tells people that there are people that have been through similar stories. Adam was exiled from the garden and Cain was exiled from his family. And yet they gave birth to new generations. Those generations gave birth to new generations and sometimes what was once exile might begin to feel like home. 
The scripture that Dinah read at the top of the service from Genesis 21 has Adam planting a tamarisk tree. And it says that uh, Abraham, Abraham planting a tamarisk tree. And then it says that Abraham lived as an alien in the land. A tamarisk tree is unique because it is one of the best trees that you can find in a desert. It's not a very large tree, but it's got a lot of small leaves that give a lot of shade. And somehow, I don't know how it works, somehow this tree puts off moisture. So when you're in the desert and you find a tamarisk tree, you naturally want to sit under it. The strange thing about a tamarisk tree, though, is that it will take at least two generations to grow to that size. And so for Abraham to plant a tamarisk tree is not to plant a tree for himself. He plants this tamarisk tree for the generations that would come after him. Finally, I think that this genealogy finishes with the gospel or good news proclamation from the lips of a man named Lamech. Lamech is said to have lived 777 years. And while I do not know the meaning of all the ages of everybody, I do know that the number seven is significant for the Jewish people. It means the fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven. And Lamech is described here as 777. Lamech was the father of Noah. And when he gives birth to Noah, he proclaims that this boy will bring comfort to his people. He'll bring relief from what they may be suffering because of the work of their hands. This word comfort is most familiar to the Jewish people from Isaiah 40, where Isaiah proclaims comfort, O comfort my people, and tells them that their exile will soon be over. This genealogy echoes this proclamation of Isaiah. This genealogy says that we will not be in exile forever. That somebody will come to give us comfort. Please pray with me. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who gives us life and who sustains us and brings us to this very moment. We may not all be in exile within this room, Father, but I know that there are some of us that do feel it. That we may be in exiles of our own creation, that we may be isolating ourselves from friends and family, that we may be in some other experience of exile where we do not feel like we are living within the promise that you have for us. And in these places, Father, it can be scary and it can be lonely. And we'd ask, Father, for those of us that are in this place of exile, that this community would be for them a place where they can find unity, a place where they can find permanence and continuity, a place where they can find encouragement, a place where they know who they are, with whom they belong, and that they have purpose. We bless you, Father, for the good news of your kingdom. The good news that we are your divine image bearers and that we get to work with you 
and bringing shalom and peace to this place. We bless you, Father, for who you are and who you have created us to be. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.